Good morning, everyone. Welcome to um, Sunday School Adult Education at Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. You're going to get a double dose of me today, so hang on to your seats. This will be a good warm up. But anyway, we're going to talk about something that I think is uh, really important in the body of Christ. And I'm going to be speaking on the topic of affliction, but the way I'm going to be speaking on it is how we can one another, each other in the church. You see that phrase often in the New Testament, one another. And it's used in the Bible 100 times in the New Testament, but it's used 59 times specifically focusing on commands that we are to do or not do to one another. And so when we talk about the topic of affliction, Ed Welch, who is a counseling person connected to Christian Counseling Education Foundation, CCEF, says the following. Human life entails misery and woe, broken relationships, agonizing illnesses, the prospect of one's own death, depression, injustice, and atrocity, quiet yet paralyzing fear, memories of sexual victimization, the death of a child or a loved one, and many other painful problems leaves uh, none of us unscathed. It would be impossible to minimize the breadth and depth of suffering both in the church and the world. Significantly, God's word acknowledges the pain, stating that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book entitled The World is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and it's about the nature of the fall and the fallout of the fall and how the whole creation itself is groaning under a curse. If you go to Romans 8 and read the rest of that passage, you will see that not only creation itself, but we ourselves groan under the curse, as it were, of creation. And so as we think about this topic, I think it would be good that we pray. So let's pray. Father, we know this topic is something that touches every one of us. Either we're going through it or we know somebody who's going through it. And we want to be better equipped to know how to minister comfort and grace and hope to each other. Uh, that is a calling, not just for the pastor or the elders or the deacons, but for every one of us. Commands are given. So we pray we would listen with an open heart and uh, appreciate understanding how we can more effectively and more uh, uh, obediently minister the grace of God to one another, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, when affliction comes, there are generally three reactions that people can have. And the first one would be falling apart. I don't know if you've ever fallen apart over the news of something, but falling apart sort of looks like being ruled by fears or anger or losing control of your emotions 
or failing to continue any kind of uh, proactive relationship with the Lord. You just sort of quit. You sort of say, I'm done. This is devastating. I don't think I can keep it together. I don't think I can take one more step. That would be falling apart. Uh, if you've fallen apart before, you have a friend in me, because I've fallen apart before. And uh, there's nothing meritorious necessarily. Sometimes it hits us uh, out of left field. We're not prepared for it. It totally decks us and uh, sort of knocks us out. The second way would be the stiff upper lip way, stoically bearing the stress and the pain of affliction. Affliction is just really a general term for stress, for brokenness, for pain, for suffering, uh, all of that could come underneath the rubric of uh, affliction. And so afflictions come to us, but the stiff upper lip way is the assumptions that Christians don't fall apart. It's based on the assumption that we somehow rise above all of that, that the Holy Spirit will give us immediate peace and that, uh, you know, the pain we have will stop and everything will come out uh, better immediately, you know. But the stiff upper lip is sort of faking it, sort of sucking it up, going on without really dealing with it. And it's just repressing emotion. And those of you who stuff it or repress emotions are from time to time, it's going to seep out. It will seep out. And it's ugly. I've seen it. I've never done it. No, I've done it, but I've seen it. And in 40-something years of pastoral ministry, I've engaged with a good bit of it. By the way, I had an bro, uh, older brother. I had. He's in heaven now. He was almost three years older than me, and his life was one of constant affliction. Uh, he lost one eye at age 11. He had a rare uh, blood tumor disease called the von Hippel-Lidau syndrome, which eventuated in taking his sight away. He had spinal tumors. He had three brain tumors. He had a kidney removed, and he died at 42. And so I lived in a household that really uh, underwent a lot of afflictions. The first time I ever remember hearing anybody really pray from their heart, pouring out her soul was my grandmother. Uh, when my brother was in hospital going through brain surgery, my grandmother was Church of Christ. She didn't think we were Christians, but that woman could pray. I'd never been in the presence of anybody who poured out their soul like that before the Lord. It had a real big impact upon me. With that said, the third way is growing through affliction. And that seems to be the most mature way. And the person sees the affliction as God's instruction and an opportunity to learn more about ourselves and about God and to actually grow closer to God. David said, it's good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And so affliction can be used by the Lord to actually enhance and develop our relationship with him. Now, let's talk quickly about levels of pastoral care and affliction. Now, you say, I'm not a pastor. I'm using pastoral in a general sense. 
By the way, one of the things that I often do when I'm talking to people about affliction is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul calls the Father, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we can be comfortable. No. He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the comfort we have experienced from God. And so your afflictions are not wasted on you. They actually equip you to be a counselor. Sometimes the best person to talk to when you're going through a particular affliction is not necessarily me or one of the elders or one of the deacons or one of the leaders in the church. Find someone who has been through what you're going through and listen and talk and ask questions and engage and that can be extremely helpful because that person has experienced it and has dealt with it in a powerful way so the first thing I would say is if you're attempting to reach out to someone who has experienced affliction be present be warm be comforting and uh, talk about how uh, it, one can look outside of oneself for strength. Uh, build a relationship if there's not one already there. Do not preach to the person. Do not give straight content in a lecture form. Now, that's one thing that a young pastor often doesn't understand that you need to do. Sometimes you just need to sit with the person and cry with the person. Be silent with the person. We've all heard stories of people say, I had a pastor come visit me and he read scripture to me and he talked about all the principles of suffering that should be done before all that happens not in the middle of it happening and and the person said I wished he would go away he said another person came to visit me and they just sat and held my hand and cried with me there's something powerful about that something very moving about that I'm not saying that you don't ever broach that subject that will come but try to provide a, a good passage to look at. I'm not going to take time to look at these passages because they're hundreds. But Isaiah 49, 14 through 16 talks about God says, Can I forget my suckling child? There's a real emphasis upon compassion here. The second would deal not so much with feelings as it would behavior exhort and urge the person to stay in a responsible walk with the Lord encourage them to continue the means of grace because what do you naturally do when affliction comes you stop what you stop praying you stop reading and I hear people say it doesn't do any good stop reading the Bible you stop uh, attending church yeah you're numb and it hits you so hard, but they need to be encouraged to continue using the various means of grace because that is uh, where they will get strength from. To continue their devotions, to continue to serve others, to be somewhat active, to refuse bitterness, and to uh, forgive where necessary. Now, this is how a root of bitterness springs up among us is we fail to receive the grace of God and in our pride and anger we become very bitter about it 
And bitter is like, uh, which one of the Charlie Brown characters had the dirt smoke pop? Pig pen. You're literally a pig pen. You're oozing bitterness. Nobody wants to be around a bitter person. It's hard work to be with a bitter person. And it's devastating. And that is a temptation when we go through it. So we're encouraging the person to obey the Lord even though it's hard, even though you're numb, even though continue to use the means of grace that God has provided. And finally, we want to talk about showing the person some very important things. And this, this is relationally. This is not all at once. This is over time. But show the person that affliction brings out the worst in us. They show our lack of faith, our lack of patience, uh, our lack of submission to God, and so on. They reveal all kinds of lust, anger, idols, pettiness, fear. Rather than blaming the affliction for all their misery, realize that affliction is bringing out our sin. Go to God and confess it and rely upon his grace and strength in new ways. Repent and put to death your sin by soaking yourself in the love of Jesus Christ. Mortification of sin and vivification by the Spirit are what's called aspiration or two sides of the same coin. How do we kill sin in us? There's only one thing that can kill sin. It's the power of the Holy Spirit whose number one job is to get you to fall in love with Jesus Christ. His number one job is to show you the beauty, the glory, the suitability, the attractiveness of Jesus for your soul. And so the way to kill sin is to realize how deeply loved and cared for we are. Because that's the last thing you're going to feel at that moment. You're going to feel like what? God has abandoned you. I have liked Charles Haddon Spurgeon for a long time. And here's what he says about, in a sermon, I preached it out in 18-something. 18, 18 but he says this. It was a while ago. He says, we are far too apt to entertain hard thoughts of God. The horrible atheism in our depraved nature continually quarrels with the Most High. And, we are, and when we are under his afflicting hand, and things go to cross our will, will, the evil of our nature becomes sadly evident. When sorely distressed, we are too apt to think and to speak as we ought not to concerning the Most High. Let us never forget that our hard speeches have all been false speeches and that our suspicions of God have always been libels upon him. When we have not thought and spoken well of his name, we have thought and spoken amiss. Pretty good for an uneducated man, isn't it? What a profound gift that man had and ability to speak. And it does speak to me. So ordinarily, encourage the person to uh, continue in those three levels. I would call it the affections or the feelings, the behavior, and to also continue to receive instruction. There's so much more. Uh, with a mature Christian who you already know, you can move through those levels pretty quickly if you're dealing with a person who has a level of maturity. Uh, but 
some people sort of get stuck in one of these areas and you have to be willing to spend a little more time. And if you don't know whether or not the person you're speaking with is a Christian, what a grand opportunity to talk to them about the nature and power of the gospel to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's look at some basic scriptural truth regarding affliction. Yeah, that's where I am. Okay. Uh, we need to learn how to draw strength from God during affliction. And the basic truth that Scripture gives me is my favorite word person regarding affliction in the Bible is Job. And Job has his counselors who are not the people you would want comforting you. They offer no comfort. They're pretty good at pointing out the sin and blaming you for why you are in the mess you is in, but they don't help you. But Job says, though he slay me, I will what? I will trust him. Though he slay me, I will trust him. It's a powerful statement because Job lost everything, didn't he? Everything that a person could lose, he lost. He got it all back and more in the end, but he lost. His loss was real. God will not leave you alone. He is very near to us when we are in times of trouble. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And the psalm goes on to describe an earthquake. And a chaotic situation. And he talks about the quiet rivers in Zion where God dwells with his people. That there is a pre preserving sense of the peace of God which passes understanding communicated to the heart by the Holy Spirit of a person who's experiencing the uproar of affliction. God never leaves us alone. He has special love for sufferers. He will give us strength and patience especially as we strive to rest. <laughs> that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? We strive to enter his rest. Another thing is that God promises the Holy Spirit will help us in our needs. He prays for us in words that are not uttered, Romans eight twenty six. He knows our weakness and he prays for us. As a matter of fact, all three persons of the Godhead have that attitude toward us. Christ is at the right hand praying for us. The Father is hearing that prayer. The Holy Spirit inside of us is praying in words that can't be uttered. This is not some prayer language. This is something that transcends that. It is the Holy Spirit speaking on our behalf. And their prayers get answered. <laughs> okay? So you should be encouraged. Even if you feel alone, you feel isolated, you don't have any really good Christian fellowship at your job or at other places, you can be assured that the triune God is deeply engaged with you in your problem. In summary, the strength we need in suffering and affliction will come by doing uh, our responsibilities in terms of, again, the means of grace. Uh, Read, pray, study, fellowship, serve, witness, obey. Do everything that you're physically able, trusting that the God of peace will be with you. In summary, the strength we need for suffering will come in the doing of what God has called us to do.
Another thing we need to do is learn to grasp God's perspective on suffering. Uh, All the important things, salvation, adoption, guarantee of heaven, all of those are safe. That is small compared to what Jesus suffered for us. This is small compared to what glory we will have. The present sufferings of the present time, Paul says in Romans 8, are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So if you're going through affliction and you're going through suffering and pain, and it's devastating, I'm I'm not minimizing that at all, and I'm not minimizing how difficult it can be, you have to learn to get perspective. You have to look at how God's, what his perspective on our lives is. I remember I read a quote, and I don't know who said it. And it was back when I was a first a pastor in 1977. It's a long time ago, wasn't it? And I lived in this big manse uh, alone. I wasn't married at the time. I had not yet caught my beloved bride. It was a couple of years after that. Everybody was parading their daughter or all these people to hooking him up with the pastor. None of them wanted to be with the pastor. <laughs> Hardly anybody. <laughs> Where I'm losing my train of thought. Oh, I read this quote and it was this. Think of heaven this way. Think of eternity this way. Let's say a bird flies to any coast in the world, picks up a grain of sand, flies and drops it in the Grand Canyon once every thousand years. By the time the Grand Canyon is filled, eternity will just be beginning. Can you? I remember that hit me like a brick forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. This life is a whisper. This life is a hand breath. That's where I get that from. Uh, this life is this, a mist. It's vapor. It's here for a while. It's gone. But eternity is forever. And so to adopt that perspective sometimes will help you cope. Uh, balancing suffering against the duration of eternity can uh, help us along the way. And we have to balance suffering severity against the glory that will be ours. Sometimes people tell us it's not so bad, it could be worse, and that doesn't help. It's never helped me. We compare our suffering now to the joy and glory of heaven, and our suffering, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is outweighed by the glory. When Stephen in the process of being stoned in Acts chapter 7, caught a glimpse of heaven, he got so excited that he seemed to forget the small matter of his execution. One second of glory will outweigh a thousand years of pain. To get suffering in perspective takes meditation upon God's Word. Understand how God works in our hearts. Suffering reveals our weaknesses, and it's an important opportunity to see one's sin more closely and experience God's grace more deeply. It's a time to draw closer to the Lord and to experience him 
he has hidden purposes in everything that happens. Romans 8, 28. Uh, I preached a sermon on that years ago at the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in town when I was here the first time, and the title of the sermon was Believing What You Know, or When the Darkness Comes, Believing What You Know in the Light. In other words, you look at a verse like Romans 8, 28, and it's a comforting verse, but it never says all things are good. It just says God takes all things and works them for good. And that's a genuine comfort there. That uh, have you ever uh, imagined yourself at the foot of the cross and listening to people speak? How could God let this good man die? How could God bring any good out of the heinousness of the death on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ it was the most heinous, most evil, most despicable, most wrong event in the history of the world, and yet out of that, what does he bring? Everything. Everything we experience as good happened to our Savior there. And so, it's a good place to go and camp, soak, uh, and so it's quite helpful for all of us to realize that we may never understand on this side of eternity or even on the other side, I don't think we'll be that concerned with it, how it all fits together into a whole, but we trust that God does. Now, God has revealed purposes and suffering for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 10 and elsewhere, the Bible says we're not to try to guess at God's hidden purposes but rather to see, seek his revealed purpose, namely that we grow in grace. God uses suffering to break our self-confidence and pride. Suffering doesn't really make us helpless and dependent upon God. It just shows us we always have been vulnerable and dependent, and it forces us to acknowledge that fact. I don't know if you've ever been at that spot, probably, where you know every single day you're utterly dependent upon God. By him, that is Jesus, all things consist, all things hold together. The only reason you hold together and not fly apart is because of the work of Christ in your life and that suffering God uses suffering to break us of our self-reliance our self-confidence and our pride all of which we are full of God makes us examine ourselves suffering and trials will often bring out the worst in us our weak faith our sharp tongue our laziness insensitivity to people worry bitter spirit other weaknesses in character will become evident to us and to those around us. We'll be forced to see and work on these faults. Now, if I was to meet you at the back door this morning, I won't say this, but if I did, what would you say? What are you repenting of today? And the pharisaical answer is nothing. <laughs> and the Christian answer is lots of stuff. Have you got an hour? or two but you see we're blind to our sin and we have this automatic flesh reaction to any exposure of it's not my fault 
The Posies do not have a family crest, but if we did, the motto would be, it's not my fault. <laughs> and yet, suffering exposes us, makes us vulnerable. It can also strengthen our loyalty to God. When we're suffering, we'll be tempted to rebel against God. In times of health and prosperity, it's quite easy to consider obedience, but when it costs us a lot, we waver. During trials, we hear God say, Oh, were things all right between us as long as I waited on you hand and foot? Now can, we can see that if you're really out to serve me, whether you only expect me to serve you, it's called using God to get a good life. That was sort of the early version of my Christianity. The early version and understanding of my Christianity, you know, and if you're like me, you look back five years ago and you say to yourself, I can't believe I believed that five years ago. You know, I don't know how many more years I got, but hopefully it'll be 10 years. I don't know. But suffering happens that way. It, it, it gives us perspective, and it shows us stuff, and it uh, shows us my early Christianity was pretty much this. Now that I'm saved, God has given me the rule book. He's given me commands in Scripture. And so now that I'm saved and have a new nature and the Holy Spirit indwells me, all I got to do is what the Bible says do, and then God will be forced to bless me. The only trouble was totally blind in understanding that I couldn't keep the law. I was a de facto or de jure Christian de facto Pharisee. I'm now a recovering Pharisee. I go to meetings. But what I'm telling you is it, it just opens our eyes to lots of things we don't know about ourselves that we will find out. It makes us more compassionate. Uh, I, <laughs> I remember that I, I moved to Louisiana to plant a church. What time is it? Oh, okay. Got to shorten these stories. I moved to Louisiana to plant a church, and I went to this large church in the Presbyterian, made a presentation on how I was going to plant a church in Mandeville, Louisiana, and I went through all the things, and I thought it was a pretty impressive presentation. I was kind of patting myself on the back, and this little old woman walks up to me. It's always a little old woman. And she looks at me, and she kind of had a, you know, little movement going on, and she says, uh, I enjoyed your talk except for one thing. And I said, well, what was that? And she said, I didn't see an ounce of compassion in you. <laughs> Pull the plug out. It was over. And I said, well, you're a Methodist. What are you doing in a Presbyterian church anyway? <laughs> you're not even reformed. You can't criticize me. It enables us to, to witness for him. The world is often impressed by Christians' uncomplaining endurance of suffering. They may not say it to you, but they look at you and they go, I don't know how they're getting through this. And you don't even know you're doing it, but you're glorifying God. It's just oozing out of you. 
and you're not aware probably you think I'm really handling this very poorly because you know what's churning in your heart but often God will use it to draw unbelievers to himself to at least figure out how do they get through this and we have to learn to uh, personalize and see the implications of God's sovereignty. It's easy to say, I love God's sovereignty when everything's going my way. But when his sovereignty crosses my will, that's a different story, isn't it? That's what makes an Arminian, I think. We don't like it. Much of a person's misery in any situation consists of his anger and surprise that suffering has happened to him. Surprise can be dealt with if a Christian sees where suffering comes from. You remember the man born blind in John chapter 9? Everybody was blaming his parents. It must have been something they did in the way he was conceived that caused this terrible thing. Luke 13 shows us natural disasters and sicknesses where the tower in Siloam fell on 18 people and killed them. Jesus said, repent unless you likewise perish. That was his answer to that. Boy, that doesn't, that doesn't preach, does it? That, that causes people to get up and go. But we cannot usually make a one-to-one -one correspondence on why we're suffering. Sometimes we can. It's sin, and we did it. And there is a one-to-one -one relationship by it. Uh, the world is filled with disease, death, natural disasters because of sin in general. We need to remember that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not. Therefore, a Christian expects suffering, knowing that as part of sinful mankind, we're going to receive it. Uh, we are not, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Exempt from suffering. It will occur. Anger can be dealt with if a Christian recognizes God's rights over us. God creates us. He sustains us. He owns us. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. One time my uh, mother came to visit us. I, I, my mother was not a horrible person, but this is not a very pleasant thing. My mother and father came to visit us, and we were living in a <laughs> the ghetto I mean it was bad everybody we were living in a manager's apartment in a place called Spiegel Village and that was the nicest thing about it Spiegel and everybody who had lived in this apartment had been robbed everybody and we got it through some friends at church we were sort of at the bottom and uh, my mother came and she took Pam aside in another room where I couldn't hear it, and she said you tell him you don't deserve to now, I was young and stupid. She told me that. And I said, I'll tell you what you deserve. You deserve hell. <laughs> Forty-three years later, the woman's still with me sitting on the back row back there. <laughs> she didn't take it too well. It's true, but you don't want to hear that when you're hurt. It is true that we deserve total abandonment and eternal punishment looking at ourselves and so sometimes that can soften some of our irritation maybe <laughs> uh, 
One of the things that happens to us in our suffering is dealing with things like anxiety and grief and loneliness. For example, in particular, we have to understand worry. You know what worry basically is? Worry is a divided mind. I mean, on the one hand, you know you're not in control, but on the other hand, you make yourself believe that, God, if you would just get off the throne for a second and let me have it, I can fix what's wrong. I don't know why you're not doing it. Just let me have it. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? Ever do that? I have. Worry is excessive concern, and it needs to be channeled into activity. What does Paul say about worry and anxiety in Philippians 4? What does he say? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. It's a call to prayer. It's also a call to planning too. But it is a call to prayer. And grief is often... A, um, how would I put it? It's, it's a terror uh, in our lives, grief, a sense of loss. Some people talk about the stages of grief. All I know about me and the stages of grief is I keep repeating them over and over. And some things you grieve, you just learn to move on and sort of come to a place. You never, I don't think, get over it it's like the wounds in the hands of Christ and his feet and the side which he still had in his resurrection body by the way glorified body but it's sort of those marks and grief is uh, difficult but we can idolatrously become absorbed in our grief to where it's all we talk about. It's all we are. It's, it, it defines it. becomes our identity. becomes our righteousness. And that's hard. And we have to learn to work through that and come to a place of what I would call peace. And uh, I, I, I know that people have different experiences of grief. I know some people tell me it never goes away. Uh, People get upset with the way different people grieve. You know, if I don't grieve the same way you do, then you think I'm suppressing it and I'm not really dealing with it. Give people a little air and a little room. We all grieve differently. Some people, when an event of loss of great proportions happen, get extremely busy and just go to work. And others go to the bed and lay down and won't get up for days. You know, you got to learn to minister to people in the way that they're attempting to cope. But ultimately, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ, who is my strength. And then loneliness. It's not wrong, or you should never be ashamed of being lonely. Never. It's real. Remember Adam in the garden? <laughs> he was lonely. And God made what? A helper suitable for him. 
Now, he teased him, I think, because Adam had to name the animals, right? Don't you think Adam was looking at every animal thinking, is this it? Maybe that's why a hippopotamus is named Hippopotamus. That was Adam panicking. Or, that's a joke. <laughs> Trying to levitate it a little bit. Lighten it up. But, um, loneliness is painful. It's real. And, uh, if you've lost many old friends, make new ones. And, uh, be open about your thoughts and feelings. Invite people to do things with you take initiative don't sit on the sidelines and expect everyone to read your mind you have to express this stuff let the body of Christ bring to you encouragement strengthen your friendship with God don't just attend church but become connected and finally the last thing I'll say is helping people deal with self-pity Remember that no one has ever gotten what he or she deserves. We deserve nothing. Everything we have is a free gift. Consider the things we have permanently as more valuable than anything we can lose. The psalmist handled self-pity in Psalm 73. You remember how he went into the synagogue and he was wondering how God was blessing the enemies and not him? Do you ever do that comparison thing? That is a dead-end street. You want to kill any grace in yourself, do the comparison thing. This person's life is untouched, and I have stuff happening to me all the time. How come it's happening to me and not them? How come their life is so golden? You don't know what people are going through. And what I generally tell a person who tells me that, and I'm, I'm not, this is not untrue. When they ask me, why am I going through so much? I said, because God loves you so much. He really wants you connected to him, and he knows how to get you there. Now, uh, the most important antidote to self-pity and depression in general is to serve other people. Get out of yourself. Find people to minister to. And don't sit around and pout. Get out of yourself and uh, go. Now, trying to hur uh, take the last bit of time so I won't get any questions. No. Uh, <laughs> John Newton wrote a letter. It's on the back of your outline. There is a sentence in this letter that haunts me <laughs> every day. And it's uh, um, in the middle of the letter. I'm not going to read the whole letter. You can. By the way, if you don't have the book, The Letters of John Newton, get it. John Newton wrote the best pastoral counseling and care of anybody I've ever written. We've been through two or three copies in my house. He just knows how to talk to people. But here's what he says. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sins, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Can't tell you how many times I've wrestled with that one. 
He said, well, Pastor, you just need to submit to the sovereignty of God. Yeah, I do. But that statement keeps me awake at night sometimes. So with that said, we need to be the kind of church, and we are. People in this church do care. They do minister. They do get out of themselves. They do serve others. They do encourage one another. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, you just, if, if you're walking around life, in life, trying to be happy, you will never be happy, ever. If your goal in life is to be happy, if your goal in your marriage is to be happy, if your goal in your career is to be happy, you will never be happy, ever, ever. The goal in life is to be faithful to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, our time together to think about these things. Uh, with so many things happening in so many people, even in this church, as small as we are, we do pray that we become more effective at one anothering one another, at getting out of ourselves, bearing each other's burdens from time to time. We pray that we would learn. There are people here who could probably share stories that would uh, confirm much of what was said here today, far better than I can say it. And yet, Father, we pray you would heal our souls of the afflictions that fall upon us that they might bring purification to us that out of the afflictions and the furnace of affliction the dross would be burned away and the gold would remain and this we pray in Christ's name amen okay you're dismissed <laughs>